0: Thanks. Amen well, all right i I'm excited today, and i'm a sports fan, and I'm sure many of you are too, and we're happy that we're getting some semblance of sports in in the quarantine and I hope, hope your team is doing well, but I also hope your team is the Lakers. So uh, with that said, I have a story I want to share with you, of course, a sports story and i It, it came to mind again as I was watching michael jordan 's recent uh, documentary. Uh, the Last Dance, which is an amazing documentary, and one segment of it began to reflect on the Dream Team, uh, the original Dream Team back in 1992 when, you know, we, we, for years the United States uh, had not been sending its basketball professionals to the Olympics. We had been sending, sending amateurs, and we would have barbershop conversations for years about, you know what, no one would ever beat us if we could send Magic Johnson. No no one ever beat us if we could send Michael Jordan or Larry Bird and would you, it's a, it, and would you have it? We, we eventually sent those icons to the Olympics. That year was also special for me because I was on my own dream team of, of sorts in 1992. My parents had sent me off on a missions trip with an organization called Youth with the Mission. And I was with about 60 kids, somewhat around my age. Most of us were teenagers and they loved the Lord. It was the first time that I had been around young people who were this passionate about God. And during this trip, we, uh, I learned how to be passionate about God and, got, and took my game, if you would, to the next level. It just so happened that the missionary trip took place in Europe, and we were in Spain, uh, the very country where the Olympics was taking place, and the dream team was actually doing their thing. So it was a fantastic time and a symbolic moment for me with respect to that. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to connect those two stories uh, a little bit later. Um, but the significance of this f- with respect to this story is that there's a, there's a little unsuspecting story as it relates to this dream team. Of course, we have great expectations. You've got the great ac- icons, as I said, Michael Jordan and Magic Johnson and, and Larry Bird and, and Clyde Drextler, Drexler, to name a few, right? Charles Barkley, right? David Robinson. This is amazing, right? They, these guys just need to just show up and we get the gold medal. Or so they thought. So you can imagine you have the coach of this dream team, Chuck Daly, who was the coach of the Detroit Pistons. Not my favorite team because they beat my Lakers. (laughs) They beat my Lakers in the early 90s. But anyway, he was the coach of the dream team. And, you know, his challenge was how do I get these superstars, these amazing athletes, these icons, these Hall of Famers to play together and win? Well, this is what he did. Uh, He had them play against some college basketball students few of which would eventually make it in the NBA like Chris Webber or what have you. But at the time, they were college students. So could you imagine that? That's another barbershop conversation. You always ask, right, could the worst team in basketball, professional basketball, beat the best team in college basketball? Or the best team in professional, in, you know, in the NFL, or the worst team in the NFL, uh, would they lose or beat the best team uh, in, in college football? That's a, that's a classic hypothetical. Well... This wasn't necessarily the best team in college basketball, but there were some uh, prospects. There were people. There were young young people who were doing well in basketball, and so they played against these icons. What do you think happened in that game? If you don't know the story, the dream team lost. They lost. These college students, (laughs) whippersnappers, beat Magic Johnson, Michael Jeffrey Jordan, (laughs) Larry Bird, (laughs) David Robinson, Clyde Drexler, Charles, how could this happen? Now, you know, what happened was they, the Dream Team lost to the college team. And then what Chuck Daly did, the media wanted to come in and see what happened. And what happened immediately, he said, erase the scoreboard. Erase the scoreboard. We're not going to say much about it, right? And he wanted to, and what we found out later is that the coach, or at least this is what Mike Krzyzewski said. He was an assistant coach on this team. He said, you know what? I think Chuck Daly stopped coaching and let them go to see what they were going to do. And he wanted to communicate a few lessons to them so that they would be ready to get the gold medal. So let's look at these lessons, because these lessons are going to relate to us today as we continue our theme. As you know, our series this month is, I Didn't Sign Up for This, What to Do When the Abnormal Becomes the New Normal. And this basketball story is going to help us get into this message. Let's look at some of the lessons that the dream team got from that loss. Number one, you play for the name on the front of the jersey and not on the back. If you play sports, you know that the front of the jersey always has the team name, but the back of the jersey always has the name of the player. Now, I'm repping LeBron James today, as you know. My Lakers here, Okay. But every uh, jersey has uh, your name on the back. But you got to play for the one on the front. And the stakes were high for this one because they weren't just playing for the Celtics or the Lakers or the Spurs. They were playing for their country. What does it mean to play for national stakes? Second principle. He wanted his players to discern the magnitude and urgency of the moment. This is the Olympics. This is not an NBA championship, although some people may value that more than a gold medal, possibly. But on the grand scheme of things, this is for your country. Gotta get your mind right and focus on the urgency and magnitude. And then, thirdly, and here's the obvious one (laughs) you can be beat. Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, Charles Barkley. In other words, just showing up is not enough. Let's take those lessons and apply them to our experience. Lesson number one, play for the name on the front of the jersey and not the back. Here's the spiritual concept which is actually reviewed from last week. What did we say last week? The goal is not to get back to normal, but to get back to God. We've got to remember the name on the front of the jersey. This is not our church. This is God's church. And when we have that perspective, our hunger, our urgency, our focus should be God. What do you want us to get back to? What is your priority? What's your game plan? See, going back to God, this should not merely be an act of deference, but an act of logic. Because again, the church belongs to God. And anything that belongs to God is safe and secure. It is not our, really our role to try to protect the church. You know why? Because God's got that part handled. The church is not going to disintegrate. The church is not going to die. The the, the church is not going to be like, what's going to happen if we don't meet in building? That's not going to stop the church. As I said last week, the church has been through far worse. You can see it in the Bible, and you can see it in history. There have been plagues. There have been pandemics. There have been persecutions. We read last week about they were in ex- the people of God were in exile. That didn't stop God's people. Why? Because they're God's people. The church belongs to God, and anything in his hands is unstoppable. I'm going to say that again the church belongs to God. And anything in his hands is unstoppable. It is unassailable. You can't stop it. Let's look at Matthew 16, 16 and 18. Reading from the ESV, it says this. Jesus is having a conversation with Peter. He was talking to his disciples about who do men say I am and Different people gave different answers, but Peter, recognized by revelation from the Father, recognized that this was Jesus, the Christ, you are the Messiah. And after he said that, this is what Jesus says to him in verse 18, and he says, And I tell you, you are Peter, which means rock. So there's a play on words here. You are Peter. And on this rock, both Peter, the apostle, as a rock, and both the revelation that Jesus is the Christ, this rock of revelation, right— and I tell you you are Peter and on this rock I I I will build my church. On this rock I will build my church. The church is Jesus's project. He's the architect. He builds the foundation. But guess what the rest of the verse says? He says, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell. In other words, Satan will try to hit you or hit the church with its best shot. It will not prevail. It can't resist us. In fact, if I look at the language here, I see the word gates. It has the imagery of the church being the one that is moving forward, not hell. <laughs> We're going into the enemy's territory and redeeming people in creation for the Lord, and the devil and hell will not be able to prevail against us going in to do God's work. We need to know that. So guess what? Calm down. Calm yourself down. The church is not going anywhere. God always has a witness. Didn't we see in Genesis? The whole world was tripping, but he still had Noah. He still, he, I, I'm, I'm always have a witness, right? All of Israel was doing crazy things. He still had Moses. He said, Moses, if I, if I got to raise up a new Israel from you, We'll do that. God always has a witness. Got another one for you? Because this is God's church, because He's in control, it is God. God decides when church activity resumes in buildings, not us. God decides. When church activity resumes in buildings, not us. It's not Trump. It's not Newsom. It's not Cuomo. When God is good and ready. Well, when are we going to come back to the building? When God is good and ready for us to be back here? Why? It's his church. you stressing out about something that doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. Don't you think he knows? He's not a God that he's blind and can't hear. Is he worried that the church is going to disintegrate? Is he worried? Let's go to the text and see what it says. Notice, we went last week, we talked about when Israel was in exile. For 70 years, they could not worship in the temple that God told them to build. And in that temple, they had specific liturgy. There were specific practices. You got to go in this way. You got to wear this. You got to do this for the sins. And for 70 years, they couldn't do that. But check it out. Jeremiah twenty-eight fourteen. 14. Jeremiah is prophesying about this. And, 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 and he had to correct a false prophet. who was saying, ah, you're only going to be here for two years, and God's going to deliver you. And Jeremiah was like, no, you're going to be here for a long time. You're going to have to deal with this. You're gonna, you better get comfortable. Build houses. Get married. Have kids. Plant gardens. Do all these. You better get comfortable because you're going to be in exile for a while. You won't be able to worship in your physical building for a while. This is what Jeremiah says, Jeremiah 28:14. 14, he says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, The God of Israel, I, this is God saying me, I have put upon the neck of all these nations an iron yoke to serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and they will serve him, for I have given to him even the beast of the field. What this is saying is that God raised up Babylon, this pagan nation, to rule over all these nations, including Israel. God says, I did that. I did that. Now that may seem a like, well, God, why would you do that? Well, if of course, if you know the context, you know Israel was in rebellion, and God gave them the law. He said, "Look, if you do these, if you break my law, these negative things will happen to you." So God had to keep. Look, look, if He keeps the promise on the good end, He got to keep the promise on the bad end. <laughs> he says, "If you if you obey me, I'm gonna bless you. If you disobey me, you're gonna be punished." And this was an act of punishment. So. And I'm not necessarily saying that the coronavirus is a punishment. That's not necessarily what I'm saying. The emphasis here is that God is the one in control. That's what I'm saying. So he's saying, I raised up. So that should be a comfort to us because if God is the one who authored it, then we know him. We're in good hands. If my exile is is overseen by God himself, we're going to be all right. So it's God who actually raised up their oppressor because of their sin, yes, but it was God, right? And then check this out, Jeremiah 29, 10 through 14, reading from the ESV, we're going to continue. It says this, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed, 70 years, folks, some people died in that time, never came back to their building to worship. So what are you going to do? You're just going to stop being a Christian and you know, you can't have a relationship with God and you can't grow and you can't lead people to Christ and you can't do discipleship. You can't do any of that because you don't have a physical building to come to. Is that what you're saying? Something happened in 70 years where they had to have a relationship with God. For thus said the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I, look at all the eyes. <laughs> this is what God's saying. I, I will visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Now Jeremiah 29, 11 makes sense. And then he says, for I know the plans I have for you. I, I, God is saying me, this is about me. This is my plans. Not not your plans. People are getting anxious because they want to come back to church and do their plans. They have a vision for normal that they didn't ask God about. That's why they're frustrated because their normal is messed up. Well, we need to ask about what God's normal is. God's normal is the new heaven and the new earth. He's trying to get us there, He's trying to prepare us for that, for the new reality. Let's continue. It says, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. God says, I'm gonna do this personally. For I know, the verse 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. This is the context, right? Many of us quote this thinking that everything in our life will just be hunky-dory. Because he said it, yes, but what he was really doing is saying, you're going to have 70 years of exile, and you may not like that, but here's my promise so you know I got you. I got a plan. Even though it looks like I don't have a plan, it may even look like I'm against you because I raised up Nebuchadnezzar. But don't worry, I've got a plan, and they're good. I don't hate you. I don't hate you. I love you, but I I, got to be good to my word on the bad end and the front end. If I told you, if you disobey me, you're going to be punished, I got to do that too. Parents, you know this, when you have to discipline your children, when you tell them, If you do ABC and we're going to go to Disneyland or we're going to do this, you got to make good on that. But if you do good, if you make good on the good promise, when you tell them if you don't clean your room and you don't do your chores, you won't have a privilege, you got to be good on that too. And then when you're disciplining your children, you got to say, but I love you. I got plans for you. I see greatness in you. You're an outstanding leader and just you have a moment of bad judgment, but I believe in you. This is what God is saying to his people. Verse 12, then you will call upon me, call upon God, not the government, not Trump, not Cuomo, not Newsom. And though we do have responsibility as citizens to voice our opinions, to vote, to, to, to make change, all that kind of stuff. But God is like, this is between you and me. This is between, this is not with them. It's not having nothing to do with Nebuchadnezzar. It's about you and me. It says, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me. And I will hear you. I'm the one that matters, not, not Nebuchadnezzar. It says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart, all your heart, all your heart. Folks are coming to church. They plan to come back, but will you be here with all your heart? Are you going to stand there with your hands folded waiting for the worship team to get you, for your favorite song to come up? You should come in with a praise in your mouth. The Bible says in Ephesians and in Colossians to be filled with the Spirit uh, and that as we're filled, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. But then as we're filled with the Spirit, we're making melody in our hearts. Singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. It doesn't mean, that doesn't say you have to be a a, a professional singer. You just have to be a believer who has the spirit. You need to come in with a song in your heart. Verse 14, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you. He says, I'm going to do it myself. Do you think God is any different? Do you think God is any different? He will bring us back to this building when he is good and ready. But I'm convinced that God wants us to be reminded that we're playing for the team on the front of the jersey and not the back. I think God kind of like Chuck Daly, he said, I'm gonna stop coaching and let y'all see what y'all do. I'm gonna just be quiet for a little bit and see how you manage the situation. You gonna turn to me? You gonna turn to me, or you just gonna try to like just, you know, do, you know, do it your own way without seeking me. And like most good coaches, when their team starts not going toward to the plan, the coach will let them lose and say, okay, you ready to follow my playbook now? You, you want to win? You, you want to win a gold medal? Okay, you're going to have to listen to me. Let's continue. Ezra 1, 1 through 4. Again, God is the one who brings it back. It says, God, good to his word. Ezra 1, 1 through 4. It says, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, Seventy years had passed, right? Seventy years had passed. And look, we got right on time. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord himself. Cyrus is not a worshiper of Jehovah. He's not a worshiper of the God of the Jews, but God said it's time. Cyrus, he stirred up the heart of this pagan king. Continue. So that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. It was official. Verse 2. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. So first of all, he recognizes, look, everything I have came came from the God you serve. Okay? it, It came from God. So it's not mine. Right, And he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. So who's in charge, Cyrus or God? God. Verse 3, whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. And let him go to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the man of his good place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts and besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So don't just build the house, but build it in style. Go all out. Folks, we're not going to be in this pandemic forever. We're not. And when God is ready, He's going to speak to the heart of the officials. He's going to address all the vaccine issues and and, and medically, all those things that need to be worked out, he's going to handle. But in the meantime, and I'm sure in that 70 years, he wanted his people to get their hearts right. We have a lot of conflict and debate and tension. do I wear a mask do I not wear a mask you're gonna open your church not open your church some people say it's of God to open your church some people say it's not of God some people say it's of God to close your church all this debate but guess what debate about what the church should do in the pandemic diminishes when we remember whose church it is it's not ours it didn't belong the church does not belong to us I say it all the time, mainly to remind me that Jesus is the pastor of this church. He's the coach. I'm just the assistant coach. Check out 1 Corinthians 3, 3 through 9 in the ESV. It says this. It says, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, we see some of that. This, this pandemic is greater than strife about best practices. And are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos. In other words, they are they're, they're, they're debating as to, you know, my, my ministry leader is better than your ministry leader. My pastor is, or my apostle is better than your apostle or pastor. He says, he, says, he says, when you say, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? In other words, when you do that, you're playing for the name on the back of the jersey. It's not about you. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? That's what Chuck Daly was saying. What is it? Jordan, who cares? Johnson, magic, who cares if you can't win? You are playing for the US of A, Chuck Bailey was telling his, his, his team. I don't care how many uh, NBA championships you won. How, I, I don't care if you go into a Hall of Fame. You got to play together as a team and you got to play for the name on the front. It's not about you, Bird. It's not about you, Drexler. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believe. We're all servants. That's what you have to be on a team. You have to serve. Servants through whom you believe as the Lord assigned to each. Verse 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God, God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. The things we're trying to do, that doesn't matter. but only God who gives the growth. Why? Because it's God's church. Verse 8, he who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. But verse 9 is what I love. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field and God's building. There's two important points there. First of all, it's God's. He owns us, he owns the building, he owns the field. This is his project, he's the architect, he's the leader, he's in charge, and he's not worried. The church isn't going anywhere. Guess what? Jesus is building his church, but it is one made of people, not bricks. He said it, we're the building, not this edifice, we are. And once we realize that, we don't have to be depressed that we can't gather on Sunday. I know what Hebrews says, don't forsake the gathering of yourselves together. We get that. This is not a permanent situation. But we know that God is able to sustain his people regardless of a building. Why? Because we're the building. You can have church without a building, but you can't have church without people. Lesson two, right? Here's the other lesson. Discern the magnitude and urgency of the moment. Here's the spiritual concept that we talked about last week. Discern the context. Anyone who has eyes to see sees that this is not a regular time that we're living in. And certainly every generation has gone through something special. You go back various centuries, people, there are global issues National issues, certainly, you know, the 20th century, what did you have? The Great Depression. You had World War I and World War II, and you had the, you had the Spanish flu pandemic, and you had, you know, in the 60s, you had the, the racial unrest, and you had the Vietnam War, and all those kinds of things that would make people think, no, our time is the time that is suggesting this is really special. I get all of that. And with all of that said, we have to keep our eyes open, because this isn't, this isn't normal this the, the 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 abnormal really has become normal and I'm not going to read the whole passage here I'm just going to remind you of what I read last week in Matthew 24 3 through 14 we read about the fact Jesus he said look his disciples asked when are these signs what are the signs of the end of the age and he, he listed a number of things he talked about wars and rumors of wars he talked about people falling away from the church he talked about Uh, many people coming in Christ's name but being false prophets. He talked about people betraying each other and hating each other. He talked about lawlessness. He talked about the love of many growing cold. But here's here's what I want to focus on. Go to Matthew, same chapter, 24. Go to verse 13. So he says all these things. And then he says this. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Notice he didn't say, but the one who rebuked all these things will be saved. You've you got to discern truth from truth. There are things to rebuke, and there are things you can't change because they're prophesied, they're f- fulfillment of prophecy. Remember when Jesus wanted to... Well, I said last week, Jesus wanted to... He didn't want to die on the cross. He was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, God, you could do anything... And, it, it, and you know, if anybody can get a prayer through, it's Jesus. <laughs> so, this is the man who, who, who part, this is the man who calmed the sea with his voice. This is the man who raised the dead, healed the sick, got, fish out, got money out of a fish's mouth, and he's saying, God, can you do one more for me? One more. One more. Take this cup away from me. You can do all things. But the father said no. Why? Because Jesus had to fulfill prophecy. That, that's not something he can, he can get rid of. And it could be. I don't know for sure. I don't know for sure, but it could be we're in a season where these things are just supposed to happen and really all you can do is endure. But the only way you're going to endure if you, first of all, discern the moment we're in. This is not something that just goes away quickly. This might be a moment like when the children of Israel, they ended up being 70 years in exile and somebody said it was just going to be two, but it's going to be 70. So you had to endure. Look at this. Look at, look at, I, I, want you, I, I want you to think about what's happened over the last 20, 25 years, right? The, the national and global scene is in a heightened state of disarray, some of which is unprecedented. Some of it, you could say, all oh, this has happened before, but some of it is unprecedented. And whether or not we are fully living out Matthew 24 right now, what is clear is that the raw materials, For fulfilling Matthew 24 or fulfilling the book of Revelation with the mark of the beast, those raw materials currently exist. In other words, as you read biblical prophecy about the end times, we are now in a place where you can imagine how it could happen. I'm not saying this right now. I'm just saying the raw materials appear to be here. Technologically, socially, globally, nationally, nationally. Consider the changes to the world in the last twenty to twenty five years that have rapidly changed our way of life let's start with the internet right i uh, you know uh, it, it it's just changed the way we relate to each other. How about the Bush versus Gore presidential election? That was significant right and I say it's significant because You know, you got to think about it. If Gore had won the election, Obama might not have been president. Because part of what got him in the office were people not liking Bush. And if Obama had not become president, I'm not sure if Trump would have (laughs) been. Because part of what got Trump in the office was the people who voted for Trump not liking Obama. But let's go through. Then you had 9-11. Change the way we do, the way we fly, the way we do security smart devices social media how about the 2008 presidential election and the eventual election of president obama it wasn't just his election but what we now believe is possible in terms of different kinds of people running for office women and people of color and all, all of these dynamics you know hillary clinton almost became president that presidential election Open, open the floodgates in terms of the kinds of campaigns that could be run. Sarah Palin was on the ticket. All kinds of people you would have never seen before. LGBTQ legislation, right? Certainly the Supreme Court legislation, but all the other things that have happened in terms of affecting our way of life, and culturally and socially, in terms of the kinds of things that our society is open to, that they would not have been open to decades before. The election of President Trump, huge. He is unconventional. And his election and his being president has made drastic changes to American foreign policy. Even today, right? There's, there's our, 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 our relationship with our allies and our enemies has drastically changed since his presidency. The current pandemic and the domino effect on the economy, education, and other spheres of society. And how about the George Floyd killing and its aftermath and the rapid changes? I mean, I thought, I mean, the monuments that have come down, the Washington football team. Come on, would you you, did you see the day when the Washington used to be Redskins, formerly known as the Redskins, would just be the Washington football team? If all these things could happen in a 20 to 25-year period, consider what can transpire within the next 20 to 25 years. It's conceivable. I don't know that it is necessarily, but what I'm saying, Jesus told us, watch and pray. Pray, but keep your spiritual eyes open. Discern the times. Just like you can tell when it's going to rain, you can tell when the end is drawing near. And these are things you can't rebuke, you have to endure. Why? Because God is taking us to his normal, which is a new heaven and a new earth. It's coming soon, sooner than you think. It could happen in your lifetime. But if not, it'll happen within the lifetime, hopefully, of somebody you discipled or somebody in your discipleship tree. We'll get to that the next time I speak. I'm almost done here. This is the final lesson I want to say here, lesson number three, that Chuck Daly told to his dream team he says you can be beat but God (laughs) can't I added that part since the I said it the first time you we can be beat but God can't be beat so just showing up is not enough you have to lean into God and his plan for the church so guess what church we're gonna be all right The key is not trying to protect our church, but it's making sure we're submitted to his church. You should be scared if you're not submitted to his church and you're just trying to build your own, trying to create your own normal. Here's a spiritual concept. Distinguish between the things you can control and the things you can't. There's things we can't control, as I said, with the fulfillment of prophecy. Right, if the current pandemic is one of the pestilences, for example, Jesus prophesied about, it is in God's hands, not ours. And when I say that, I don't mean you shouldn't believe God for your healing. What I am saying is that while you can't, you won't be able to stop the pandemic, but you can pray for your healing. The prophecy didn't say you would die from the pestilence. It just said it was going to be a pestilence. The prophecy didn't say that you would suffer from the pestilence. It just said it would be one. So you can still believe God for your healing and your safety and your protection. Again, it's enduring. It's going to happen. The storm is going to come. But what foundation is your house built on? The storm comes to the sandy foundation and the stony one. But it's the foundation we build in Christ that will allow us to, to, to endure the storm. I'm going to skip down to the next comment here where it says this. However, you can choose to be more rooted in Christ, which is key to enduring the events that lead up to the end of this age. We must choose to be more rooted in Christ. And with this, I want to close with this passage, Matthew 13, 18 through 23 and it is Jesus speaking about the parable of the sower and the different grounds. And I think that has new meaning in this context because it talks about the different kinds of soils, which is basically an analogy for the different kinds of hearts that people have. And some people, they're not going to last. They're going to fall away, as the Bible prophesied. They're gonna, their hearts are going to go cold. Why? Because they don't have real roots in Christ. As I've said multiple times and others have said, This experience reduces each of us to our actual relationship with God. If you don't have a real one, you're going to be lost. You're going to walk in fear. You're going to abandon the faith. You're going to be seduced by doctrines of devils. Why? Because your foundation isn't really Christ. It's your concept of church. It's your concept of normal. It's your concept of convenience and comfort and what have you. But really, God's normal is different. Let's look at this here. Matthew 13, 18 through 23. It says, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately see, uh, receives it with joy. I want to I slow down here, right? The 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 first one the 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 devil snatches away immediately because it's on the path. But here's the second one here. This person hears the word and is joyful. Why? Because there's good times. There's no pandemic. There's no racial unrest. Economy's great. Church services—you got, you got, you got, you got ten church services to choose from over the weekend. You got a Friday one. You got a Saturday one. You got a Sunday one. You got it online. You, you, you got it. You got it all. You got a drive-through menu available to you in terms of your comfort and convenience. But guess what? There are people like that who are fair-weather Christians. Yet he has no root in himself. It's easy to look like things are going great when things are going great. But guess what? But endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises, like it kind of looks like it's starting to today, on account of the word, immediately, he falls. Oh, I mean, immediately he falls away. No depth. You got crowds of people going to weekend services every week. No depth. No depth. No word. <laughs> no, no insight. No 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 mentorship. No discipleship. No accountability. Don't want people in their business. Don't want people to know their name and don't want people to get into their lives. No roots. So when the tribulation comes, when the pandemic comes, when the unrest comes, when the craziness hits Washington and Sacramento, they immediately fall away and say, where's God? Where's God? Verse 22, it says, As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches chokes the word. In other words, they put in their hope in shakable things the name on the back of the jersey. They put in their hope on the name of the back of the jersey with riches and cares and concerns. And that proves unfruitful. But look, we want to be Verse 23. As for what was sown on good soil. Right? This is the one who hears the word and understands it. Why? Because you spend time studying it. You spend time being discipled, discipling others, going deeper. You're not just hearing the word in a crowd. Jesus never gave his insights to crowds. He never gave his insights to crowds. It was always small groups, people who were hungry and saying, Jesus, help me understand. People leaning into Jesus. He always gave, Jesus always gives his insights to people who are leaning into him. Not leaning into a church service, even though that's part of it when we come together, but leaning into him. What does it say? He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another case sixty, and in another thirty. And this is what I want to tell to you that in the midst of all that's going on, the quarantine, the pandemic, the economy, education, politics, racial unrest, a, a, a figuratively speaking, a wilderness, a desert, that in Christ we can still be fruitful that in the midst of what looks just craziness, disarray, just you just dry. We can still be fruitful if our roots are in Christ. Because Christ is the architect of the church. And because he is leading it and guiding it and protecting it, it will never go away and it will never be stopped. I don't care what law is passed or what plague comes or what persecution comes the church of Jesus will remain.